Hello everyone, welcome to the SciCast podcast. I'm your host, Ashton Yoon, and this podcast you're about to listen to is about psychology, therapy, and mental health. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard stories and the perspectives of the patients, but this podcast will show us the perspectives of the therapists instead. Welcome to the SciCast podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Coolidge. He's a professor and clinical psychologist at the Department of Diagnostic Sciences at Tufts School of Dental Medicine and holds an additional appointment at Harvard MGH, Department of Anesthesia, Critical Care, and Pain Medicine. He has published multiple peer-reviewed papers and two books on pain assessment and management. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Is there anything you'd like to add to your introduction? No, it's very good. Thank you very much for having me here. Okay, great. So just first of all, what made you decide to become a psychologist and why focus on pain specifically? Well, sure. Uh, recently, well, if we go back uh, early on, I was one of those few folks who uh, decided early on I wanted to be uh, have involvement in psychology and pursue that in college. Mm-hmm. So actually in high school, what appealed to me is not uh, what appeals to some folks in terms of an interest in quote unquote helping people. Mm-hmm. I was more interested in human behavior and why people do what they do and um, issues relating to the mind. So I was basically interested in exploring research and other areas of focus uh, other than just providing services for folks, Thanks. even though that was important as well. And then how did like pain relate to your like search? Well, I came about this in an interesting way, largely at the end of my graduate career when I was at Purdue, I had the opportunity to work in a pain setting and then very much when I was an intern at Brown. (laughs) And what was interesting about it is pain, the whole area brought in clinicians from all kinds of areas. So it wasn't just a bunch of mental health providers or psychologists in a clinic or in private practice. It brought in neurologists and surgeons and other people from public health and a whole range of folks, researchers who could contribute to understanding a patient. So it wasn't really isolated in one area. So it was interdisciplinary or interprofessional. But that made it a lot more fun because there was a lot more to learn. Right. Did a lot of this research like include like mental health uh, and like... Well, uh, yeah, and I came from a behavioral standpoint. So mm-hmm. we would, my early research looked at pain behaviors and why what uh, how people show it when they're in pain and then i started doing other research on patient behaviors and risk factors that eventually is how i got into the issue some probably 15 years ago about the issue of controlled substance risk and uh, opioid risk over a period of time uh, actually i had an appointment at a dental school which i have Mm -hmm. now Uh, Tufts. So there's certain aspects about what dentists do. Again, it brings in all kinds of disciplines, but it's uh, interesting because uh, those folks uh, tend to deal a lot with pain, acute pain, sometimes chronic pain. And historically, they've actually been the second highest prescribers of opiates of any subspecialty in the country. Uh, They write them for third molar extractions and so on. Yeah, I know that like dentists give, nar- I mean, my parents are dentists. So I know that they give like a lot of narcotic medications to like control pain because uh, like a lot of surgery happens. But what are like the biggest issues that come up from using well, this? Well, that's probably one of the issues is the fact that historically, probably over the last 15 or so years, dentists have written a lot of opiates, but uh, 
the data seems to show that non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like uh, ibuprofen, uh, Motrin, those can actually work as well or better than opiates for a lot of cases. So that's been an education process. Uh, part of the problem is, uh, unfortunately, giving a lot of opiates, uh, particularly if it's not done with uh, controls and not done appropriately, increases people's risk of substance misuse or diversion of the medications and so on. Uh, what like specific narcotics are used most often? Like- well, historically, of the opiates, uh, oxycodone and hydrocodone are probably the most common that are used. Okay. Dentists used to write to Tylenol number three, which is a mix of acetaminophen and uh, and 30 milligrams of uh, codeine, but some people can't metabolize that. So that drug is fortunately not used very much nowadays. So if you're going to give opiates, those are the ones for acute problems if you're doing dental surgery and so on. Uh, but again, some of the non-steroidals often work just as well or better. If somebody has a chronic pain problem, a chronic oral pain, general dentists don't often deal with that, but uh, they should be able to flag it. And with chronic pain, oral facial pain, and other sorts of pain, other more, other stronger medications are sometimes used. Nice. Do you have any like most memorable stories from like your experience uh, with substance abuse? And Well, yeah, the issue is uh, both from a uh, clinician standpoint, mm-hmm. where you're treating patients, and I'm talking about dentists and physicians and so on from a patient standpoint. So historically, patients have not gotten uh, gotten treated very well if they've had chronic pain. And it was simple for the physicians to just uh, give increasingly and large amounts of opiates because the patients in many cases were asking for them. And it just sort of gets the person out of your office and temporarily solves things. That ends up being a dilemma, and I'll give you some examples. The most I've ever seen a patient on was uh, the dose equivalent of about 600 Percocet a day, okay, because they kept increasing the medication and increasing the medication. The most number of different medications I've seen a patient on was 23 different medications, all for for pain-related problems, and it becomes a polypharmacy mess in some cases, and patients end up particularly with an addiction and and a problem and perhaps related depression, they're at risk for death by overdose. So that's something of what you see. Now, with chronic pain, you also see other problems other than the opiates themselves. Sometimes you see unnecessary surgeries because everybody's struggling to help them. And the surgeries cause more problems, particularly if they're unnecessary. The most I've ever seen on a particular patient was 43 surgeries all Uh, dentist and physician generated. So patients become frustrated. They become increasingly depressed. That's 80% of patients if mm-hmm. their pain has lasted for more than six months and it has a, it can have a significant impact on their life. Right. I'm assuming most of these cases were, I don't know, like not in the last decade or or like are people using less and less opioids nowadays? Or? Yeah, there's been a precipitous drop in terms of writing opioids. Mm-hmm. Ironically, what's happened, there's been no significant drop in overdose deaths oh, because okay. people have shifted from somewhat safer prescribed opiates to street drugs, largely illicit fentanyl. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you get an increased risk of overdose deaths, which we've seen during the pandemic and, and afterward. So part of my task 
is not necessarily just to convince dentists and other healthcare providers to write fewer opiates or write them more appropriately for the right patients, but also to assess whether the patient has a risk for substance use disorder and a risk for overdose. And that's something that uh, dentists can learn how to do, mm-hmm. as well as physicians, although physicians are a little more experienced with it right now, but we're focusing on on dentists. I see. And I see that you do think some things for regarding pain care. Like, what do you think are the biggest issues about access to it? And well, there's tremendous access to pain care right now, in mm-hmm. part because there's a uh, difficult with insurance reimbursement for mm-hmm. pain care. So people often don't have access, and it's even worse in areas that are underserved where there are healthcare barriers. It's difficult in certain subpopulations because access to medical care is a big issue and access to pain care is even greater. So that ends up being an issue. Other problem areas are training. A lot of uh, clinicians are not trained to manage patients with persistent pain conditions or comorbid psychiatric conditions. So that ends up being a problem. Our focus has been to try to train physicians and dentists and others, and even even psychologists, they're not particularly good at managing, assessing or managing chronic pain problems. It's, mm-hmm. it's often not part of their their training. So those are barriers we're trying to address. Uh, the access to care and financial ones are a big one, but training is another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and patients, uh, the patients themselves, there's often under a significant undereducation in terms of what chronic pain is. And sometimes their assumption is that you could just fix it and it'll go away, but that's not often the case. I see. And then rewinding a little bit uh, regarding like the use of opioids, what do you see like is the biggest like mental health issues that occur? You said you mentioned like okay. depression, like 80% of them. Yeah. 80% get a little depressed. 50% mm-hmm. get a major depression within two to five years of a persistent pain problem. Yeah. Then if we look at the numbers, uh, plus or minus are at risk for death by suicide with a serious depression. So that's significant. We find that trauma and post-traumatic stress is also a predictor of developing a treatment-resistant pain problem. And uh, it doesn't mean it causes it, but uh, PTSD may tweak the brain in a certain way that it makes you actually much more susceptible to developing a treatment-resistant pain problem. So we find patients with uh, comorbid post-traumatic stress Uh, Almost always comorbid uh, depression, anxiety can get severe is also a problem that complicates the patient's recovery. Again, sometimes ignored and sometimes patients use some of the meds to self-medicate for treatment of their anxiety, which complicates the issue. So these are all, so those, those tend to be the major psychiatric comorbidities that we see with patients. And I was curious, what was like, what's like the primary age group that you see like in these situations? Uh, Do you see many like people of my age or I assume? Yeah, we do. So it's, but it's all over the map. It depends. Mm -hmm. If you talk about oral facial pain or some pain conditions like fibromyalgia, which is diffuse pain, there's a higher incidence of uh, females in that population. Mm -hmm. There's some debate about why that is. I think uh, uh, sometimes those folks are just more likely to go to the providers, but it's pretty well-established to higher instance of females. If we look at other pain conditions, certain sorts of occupational or work-related injuries, low back pain being one of the most common ones, 
You see, it's uh, probably slightly slightly higher among males, mm-hmm. but not as much as lopsided with the uh, oral facial pain, but slightly higher among males. Migraine headache, again, slightly higher among females. It, it sort of depends. So there are some uh, sex differences as well. So those are the main ones that you yeah. sometimes see in terms of differences. And there's some others, some others that vary by country in terms of uh, how things get diagnosed. And some of that has as much to do with the doctors being all over the map with their diagnoses uh, as well. Okay. So maybe the last question, our time is almost up. So what advice would you give to someone just entering or wanting to get into the field of psychology? Something to like help along the process with it? Sure. Uh, What I would strongly suggest is that they do what you're doing. They interview psychologists and clinicians to see where their area of expertise is. The thing about psychology is extremely varied. So I would also interview not just clinicians seeing patients, but also academic psychologists to see some of the things they do. There are industrial psychologists who work in a whole range of uh, occupational settings. So there's a range of different fields within psychology that are are pretty broad-based. And so it's not just one hat that somebody might necessarily get trained in. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciated all your insights. And I hope I might be able to talk to you again. I don't know. but It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. That will mark the end of today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Dr. Coolidge for joining me today. All of your insights and knowledge were super interesting to listen and hear. 